0: Thank you, Connor, and the team. Certainly, is a difference between singing songs and worshiping the true and living God. The sense of intimacy, and Lord willing, you experience that even just now as we engage the living God of the universe. My name's Chris Norman. I'm uh, one of the leaders here uh, at Grace. I, uh, I graduated from the University of Michigan. No applause, no, hold your applause. No, hold your applause, please, I, I, let me finish. Um, I, I graduated from, from, from Michigan. I looked at uh, a few different graduate schools uh, as I was preparing uh, to, to graduate from Michigan. Landed at a school in Warsaw or Winona Lake, Indiana. It was a three-year, Uh, graduate program, Grace Seminary. I made a commitment at the beginning that I was going to go through the program without taking on any debt. It was not an easy journey. And by the middle of my second year, all my resources were depleted. And so I spent time praying and fasting asking God to somehow provide the money for me to continue in my program. The next semester was quickly approaching. I applied for grants. I, I applied for scholarships. I also asked many people around me to, to pray and, and if they were willing to fast as well. The school offered me financial aid uh, and gave me the opportunity to take out some some loans. And, and while I don't think it's wrong to take out loans uh, to go to school, I felt like I made a commitment to the Lord uh, to go through my program without taking loans. And so as the deadline was within days away, the money didn't come in. And so I had to make the very difficult decision uh, to forego the next semester and just to continue to work and and save money. I knew that would extend my schooling and I didn't want to do it. But for me, it just became an obedience issue. And then just as the next semester was about to begin, I received a letter. It was from one of the foundations I applied to. The foundation was owned by two uh, older women, women who were sisters. And who help ministry students all over the country and even in other parts of the world as well. And I had received a decline response from them weeks earlier, but this is what the letter said. And I'm paraphrasing, and this was from one of the women Dear Chris, we, we know we declined your application when submitted, but something that has never happened in the 40 years that we've been assisting students financially. And it occurred earlier this week. I had a dream. And for some reason of all the applications and the stories we read, even though I've never met you, you were in my dream based on the things that you wrote in your application. And when I awoke... I concluded that God was speaking to me and telling me to support you. And so I talked to my sister and she agreed. And so we will give you the entire grant money that you've asked for to pay all of your expenses. You know, there's certain things that happen in your life that grab your attention and you never forget them the rest of your life. These things happen, don't they? You've experienced them. I'll never forget the day that I read that letter, tears coming down my eyes, telling those who I had already told that I'm not taking the next semester and telling them the news. It was absolutely amazing. Now was that dream that that woman had? was it from God, or was that a coincidence? Well, I know what I believe. You know, money is one of those topics that most people think about every day, and it usually surrounds the issue of never feeling like we have enough. In fact, let's just think about three socioeconomic levels in our society and the way each of these socioeconomic levels think about money. Everybody thinks about money, and we think about money often. There are different socioeconomic levels in our society. and They think about money differently. So let's think about how people in the upper socioeconomic level think about money. Well, here's typically how they think. How can I plan for an amazing future in my retirement and have really nice things now? Or people in the middle socioeconomic level, how they think about money. How can I plan for an adequate future in my retirement and have at least nicer things now? Or those in the lower socioeconomic tier, how can I have anything in the future and at least have the necessities of life now? So everyone in the room here this morning fits on in one of these socioeconomic levels, or maybe in between two of them. And we know everything is relative, of course. Those in the lower group in our country would be considered rich in most third world countries and all third world countries around the world. But nonetheless, while it's relative, every culture has this as some resemblance to these three categories. And so let me just ask you, as you look at the three different socioeconomic levels, which group of people do you think spends more time thinking about money than the other two groups? Just in your own head, just think, which group spends more time thinking about money? The upper, the middle, or the lower socioeconomic group? I'll give you my answer. I think the answer is that all of them spend an equal amount of time thinking about money just for different reasons. All three groups spend a lot of time thinking about money, but they think about money for different reasons. Our passage this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want to encourage you to, to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to look at the issue of contentment. What does contentment mean? Because contentment brings freedom. And I'm assuming that everyone in the room here this morning desires freedom. We don't want to be in bondage. We want to experience freedom. Contentment brings freedom. And so we look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, and it says this beginning at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have even wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, the word contentment is this Greek word, autoarchaea. And it was used in classical Greek and in a philosophical sense for this idea of a perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. It's the way the philosophers would use this particular word. When it comes to needs, everything is in harmony and at peace. No anxiety, no worry, no stress. Just this feeling and this sense that God's provided everything I need. I don't need anything. That's the word contentment. The contrast here is between contentment And the love or pursuit of money. And here's what the passage is saying money is not the root of evil, money is amoral. It can be used for good things, it can be used for bad things. It's the love or pursuit or the worship or the desire of money. And it's a slippery slope that leads to great temptation. And as the scripture says, it can tend to plunge us, plunge us into ruin and destruction. It happens subtly. I mean, if I were to ask anyone here, just raise your hand if you love and worship money. Raise it it high, you love and worship money. I'm guessing no one is going to raise their hand. In fact, let's just watch this little video. The Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. And it only takes a look at the world around us to see how true that is. As Christians, God has made it very clear that we are not to love money. But that doesn't mean we can't take money out on a few dates and have a crush on money. You see, as long as you don't love money, you are free to hold hands with money and daydream about money and carve your and money's initials with a plus sign in an old oak tree, though not with a heart around it as that would symbolize love. So take money on a long walk on the beach after a candlelit dinner and tell money how much it means to you and how special it is to you. As long as you don't say, I love you, your relationship with money is perfectly biblical. These have been... Deep Deep thoughts thoughts from a shallow Christian. Indeed, those are deep. So, if I were to ask, okay, raise your hand if you love money, no one's gonna raise their hand. But if I were to ask the question, who here is content in life with just the necessities? How many of us could raise our hand? Content with just the necessities. What do I mean by content? Well, the meaning here is being content in life with food, clothing, and shelter. The difference between needs and wants, let's be clear. We have to understand the difference between needs and wants if we're going to understand contentment. And so needs are food, clothing, and shelter. You have to have those three things. Wants are everything else. Everything on top of that. Needs can be satisfied and lead us to contentment. If we have our needs met, we can be content with that. Wants, however, create this continual desire for better and for more. And it plunges us or leads us into a love of money. It's subtle, but it's strong. Raise your hand if you do not have food, clothing, and shelter, or at least access to food, clothing, and shelter. And again, no one's going to raise their hand because all of us have access to food, clothing, and shelter. The question is, and it's a very difficult question, are we content with the necessities of life, food, clothing, and shelter. So let's answer, let's ask and answer the the question, are we content? I mean, how would you answer that? Are you content? Let me give you a little litmus test. Let me ask three questions. And of the three questions, let's find out as you do a little bit of a self-spiritual inventory. Of the three questions... How many of them you can answer with a yes? Let's see how content we are. First question is this. I give God the first tenth of my income. In the Bible, this is called the tithe or structured giving. Number two, I spend less than I make. And number three, I seek to be generous with my money to people in areas of need. In the Bible, this isn't the tie. This is called the free will, free will giving or offerings, spontaneous giving. So do a little quick spiritual inventory. How many of the three can you say yes to? Because the Bible teaches these three principles that we are to be practicing in our lives. And here's the proposition. So, Make the connection. Here's the proposition. If we cannot say yes to all three of them, it's because we are not content with the necessities of life. Food, clothing, and shelter. If all three of these areas of our principles in Scripture that God desires for us, and unless someone is living in extreme poverty, all of these three things can be practiced without compromising or jeopardizing the necessities of life. So if I can practice all three of them without jeopardizing food, clothing, and shelter, then the question is, if I'm not, then what am I pursuing above food, clothing, and shelter, which falls into the areas of wants. In other words, for 99% of the people practicing these three things will not jeopardize our needs, but they will jeopardize our wants. So here's what the passage is connecting. There's a contrast between those who are content with food, clothing, and shelter, and those who are chasing after money and things. It's very difficult. Let's read the passage again, First Timothy 6. It says, But godliness with contentment, this state of where God has met all my needs, Is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we'll take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, and by the way, the Greek word for clothing there also has this indicator of shelter as well. So if we have food, clothing, and shelter, that's what we'll be content with. I'm at peace and content if I have food, clothing, and shelter. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have even wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs because the attraction of the world is so strong. There's a reason why Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not the issue of money Someone who has a lot of money can have no love of money. Someone who has very little money can worship money. It's not a matter of quantity. It's the issue of the heart. It's the issue of the heart. But what often can consume our minds, is, and what we think about is, is money is, I want better things. I want nicer things. I want greater opportunities for my kids. And we work hard in our lives so that we can get more stuff and nicer stuff. And it ends up moving into a love of money. And let's be honest, most Americans, when compared to the rest of the world, we are extremely rich. So let's just take a look at these three areas and just think about them for a few moments. First is, This issue of giving God the first tenth. There's a reason why God wants us to give him the first tenth. From the very beginning pages of the Bible to the end throughout the New Testament, we see this idea and this principle of taking our money and giving the first portion, the first tenth. It's not because God needs the money or the church needs the money. It's not that at all. It's an issue of control. Part of the challenge is that we all in some ways are control freaks. And so the whole thing about giving God that first portion or that first tenth is an issue of release. It's saying, God, I I understand that everything I have is yours. I give you that first portion as a way of saying that you're in control, I'm not. It's actually more for us than anyone else. God wants to give us freedom. And yet we find ourselves being controlled and wanting control. He wants us to have freedom. First Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 says, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatians churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Just a few things uh, about this idea, this biblical idea of tithing. Number one, 10% is not the law. It's a biblical guideline. Now, it was the law in the Old Testament, but we're not under the Old Testament law. It was very strict in the Old Testament. 10% was very strict. In the New Testament, it's a general guideline. 10% is a general guideline. Some people ask, well, I want to give 10%. Should I give 10% of my gross or my net? That's a law question. We're not under the law. It's a guideline. It's intended to bring us Freedom. Number two, it's given to God's church without control over where it goes. Part of us being control freaks is that we like to dictate where things go. And so when we take that first portion and give it over to God, we're not in control of it because the issue is control. We want to release. We want freedom. We give him the first portion. Portion Number three, it's regular and consistent. Here in this passage, it's weekly. It could be monthly. It could be every other week. It doesn't matter. It's just consistent. Number four, th- the last principle here is that the, pr- the primary issue is not affordability. It's the issue of trust. If I give the first per- portion over to God, I don't ever have to worry about, well, I see I had a lot of bills come up this week. It was really tight, so I, w- I wasn't able to. That's an affordability issue. That's the last portion. When we give God the first portion, which is, by the way, signifying that he's first in our lives, he's at the center, I give you, God, the best, the first portion, then I take the rest. It's not an affordability issue. It's a trust issue. Now, it's helpful to keep in mind that statistics tell us that 6% Of all churchgoers tithe, 6% in our country of all churchgoers tithe. Now, what percentage of Grace Gathering attenders practice tithing? Well, obviously, it's impossible for us to know that, but we do have some indicators. And by the way, I've never known what anyone at Grace Gathering gives financially, nor do any of our elders never have known. And I like it that way because I can teach on the practice of biblical giving and not have any agendas or be thinking about anybody and just teach it the way God desires it to be taught. There's freedom in that. Tithing isn't because God needs your money or the church needs your money. It's for you. It's an issue of control. And we have difficulties with control. And so it's a a way of expressing our trust. It's a spiritual discipline for our freedom. And so while we can't say for sure what percentage of grace gathering attenders tithe, we can look at both the total giving of the church, the number of people who give, the total number of attenders, and we can look at the general household income of our city and just do some general math. And here's what it comes up with if you just do the general math. What percentage of grace-gathering attenders give little to nothing? 20%. About 20%. How many grace-gathering attenders give something regularly? 80. How many, how many give, uh, how many tithe? Now, this is going to be surprising if you look at all the just general math. 35%. I mean, this is like six times the national average Of the number of families, I'm telling you, this stat right here blows things out of the water. I don't know many environments where you have a third of the people practicing tithing. Tithing is very difficult. And in our American culture, it is so tied to the area of of wants and so difficult that most people just cast it aside. When you have a third of the people actually practicing this spiritual discipline, it says something enormously. Of the people who give online, 68%, almost 70%, the thing about giving online is that it's not tied to attendance, and so it creates the ability to be more consistent, which is super helpful as well. I want you to know how amazing these statistics are. It's hard. It's really hard. What a blessing it is for us to release control as difficult as it is. The second barometer is spending less than you make. This is equally as hard. Proverbs 21.20 says, The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. Psalm 37.21 says, The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. Spending more than we make is so easy in our country because we have such easy access to debt. It's not that easy in other countries to spend more than you make, but it's super easy in our country to spend more than you make. Sometimes the best thing to do is just to cut up the credit cards because the temptation is so strong to buy things that we can't afford. We'll just pay it later. Just think about it for a moment. Do we ever go into debt or spend more than we make just because we are, our basic needs aren't being met, food, clothing, and shelter? We go into debt, it's because we have things that we want. Now, a little confession time, a little confession time. Now, I know we all have wants, and, and I have wants that I have. And, and I'll tell you one of the wants that I have that I don't have right now, because I don't, I don't have this, but I want it. And that, and my actually three of my four kids all have these, and I don't. The dad, don't, I don't have this. It's these. I don't know if you've heard of them. These like AirPods. You guys heard of these things? These AirPods, where you have you know in your ears, you can hear things, and you don't have you don't have the wire. It's wireless. Like I have to have those. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I can't. I hate the wires and the. I can't stand the wires and now. I was driving up my my youngest daughter, who's 12, a few weeks ago. We were on a daddy date uh, Saturday morning. We were taking her to Dunkin' Donuts. And she says, now now at that point, two of my kids had these AirPods. And and she says, we're driving, and she's sitting in the front seat. And she says, Dad, guess what I'm getting today? And I was like, what? She says, looks at me, she says, AirPods. (laughs) Now she knows that I want AirPods. And I said, oh, how are you getting AirPods? She says, I've saved my money and got moms taking me to Costco today. I'm thinking now, now, now three of my kids are going to have these AirPods and she knows I want them. And, and I'm thinking, I got a credit card. I mean, I, I can do this thing if I need to. I'm trying to be disciplined here. In fact, if you haven't seen these things, I don't want to tempt you, but just, lo- just watch this. I mean, this is me. I hate that. I hate that. Yep, done that too. our uh, dear we will live in a wireless future a future where everything is wireless i mean come on we live in a wireless future we got to have those things you know what i'm saying it's like it's about the same as food clothing and shelter i think I'm trying to be really disciplined now. My birthday is next month. And so I'm like making it very known to my family, like what I would like if they want to buy me something for my birthday. Uh, but look, we're, we're enticed all the time, barraged with things. And it's super hard to have God at the center of our finances and to be content with those three things. Content with those three things. Food clothing and shelter. It's easy to spend more than we make. Lastly, giving generously as needs around us arise. 2 Corinthians 8, 7 says, but since you excel in everything in faith and speech and knowledge knowledge, and complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. See, when we, spend more, we give over God the first portion, it's an issue of control or release. We spend more than we make. That means we have some left over to be generous as God prompts us. Someone has a need, we want to meet that need. There's, there's an area of, over here, a project over here we want to give to that. There's a missionary over here. It's a, it's, a, it's a prompting. It's not an obedience issue with regard like first fruit giving is. This is a prompting. It's called in the Bible free will giving. It's when you just feel prompted. You direct the affairs of that. It's not a control thing. It's a generosity thing. The Bible calls it, or we call it uh, structured giving versus spontaneous giving. If we look at this, we've, you've seen this before. The structured giving is that first portion, that first tenth consistent discipline of giving, usually around 10% of income. The issue at the core is trust and releasing control. It's really important to understand. We're not we don't just go through the motions. We actually want to see what the core issue that, that God's dealing with. There's a reason why he's asking us to do that. Not because he needs it or the church needs it. It's an issue of releasing and control. And the question is, can I trust you, God, to do more with 90% uh, than I can do with and if I control 100% of it? Now, spontaneous giving, which the Bible often calls free will giving, it's a prompting. You direct the affairs. Occasionally giving to people or opportunities as they come up, above and beyond structured. It's an issue not of trust and release. It's an issue of sacrifice and generosity. God, how are you prompting me to give as I seek to be generous with what you've given me? I mean, look, living this way, there is... Loads of freedom. My wife and I have been married for 25 years, which means that that amounts to 300 months. From the first day we got married, we said, God, you're going to be at the center of our finances. And out of the 300 months that we've been married, you know how many months that we've had where we haven't given God the first tenth of our income? How many months? Zero. Zero. 300 months. And there's no no, no, no need to clap. Look, it's an issue of freedom. And then on top of that, looking to be generous. I mean, it is amazing to have freedom. These things are not because it's a benefit for others. It's a benefit for us. God wants us, all of us, to have freedom. He's placed principles in Scripture, whether it comes to money or any other issue, to help bring us freedom. He wants freedom for you. Now, if you're someone that's maybe you've never even heard of this teaching, or maybe you're new to the faith, or maybe you don't practice tithing, start somewhere. Maybe you can't overnight move right to 10%. That's between you and God. Again, it's an issue of, not an issue of law, but an issue of grace. But move in this direction. Take some tangible steps. For others, go right into what God's called us to with regard to So this concludes our series on spiritual disciplines. We've spent the last six weeks on spiritual disciplines. We've defined spiritual disciplines as the regular and consistent decisions and actions that cultivate one's spiritual relationship with God that are rooted in biblical practice and modeled by Jesus. It's all about intimacy with God and following Jesus and being like him. Examples of Bible intake, silence and solitude, worship, prayer and fasting, giving, simplicity. Some of the things that we've mentioned during this six-part series on spiritual disciplines. They're actions we make decisions to do. We have to make decisions, priorities. They're a means, not the ends. The goal the end is to become more like Jesus. It's possible to practice the spiritual disciplines and not grow just because you're going through the motions. God's not looking for that. When practiced rightly, however, we're drawn closer to God because the spiritual disciplines give us greater levels of freedom. They're for our blessing that God has these things for us. And most of them can be practiced both personally and in community. So how do I know if I am content? Just three basic questions that we see throughout Scripture. I give God the first tenth of my income. I spend less than I make. And I seek to be generous with what he's given me as people and needs arise. So let's just bow in prayer. And how is God speaking to you? What is he saying to you? As you interact with his scriptures and these principles, what is he saying to you? How are you gonna apply what he's saying so that we don't just be hearers of the word and then go on our way without actually putting his word into practice. So let me just pause and allow him to bring to the surface the things he wants to say to you and the ways in which you can follow him. And for those of us in the room who are, just as we're praying, as as those of us in the room who are married, we know we don't lead our finances on our own. It's shared decisions with our spouse. And so I want to encourage you, if you are married, uh, maybe even later today, having a conversation with your spouse. How do we make God more of the center of our finances? How do we pursue contentment? How do we put God first and begin to experience greater levels of freedom that he desires for us?